This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Matthew Fox. Matthew Fox is a teacher, writer, and theologian who has helped spark what could be called a spiritual revolution in this country with a succession of provocative books, including Original Blessing, Creation Spirituality, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, and most recently, The Hidden Spirituality of Men and the Pope's War. Expelled by the Dominican Order for his outspoken views, Matthew Fox is now an Episcopalian minister. In his audio release with Sounds True, Radical Prayer, Love in Action, Matthew Fox covers, among other topics, what is authentic prayer, recovering the sacred masculine and sacred feminine, and what it means to explore the dark night of the soul. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Matthew and I spoke about the four spiritual paths, the via positiva, via negativa, via creativa, and via transformativa, and how they can be applied to everything in life. We also talked about the value of grief rituals and the reinvention of Christianity and what spirituality might look like in the future. Here's my conversation with pioneering teacher, Matthew Fox. Matthew, you talk about prayer in the context of what you call adult or mature spirituality. That's not about praying for 15 minutes in the morning and at night, but that prayer is something that can actually be a way of living. And I wonder if you can say more about that, what prayer is to you. Yes. Um, years ago, it was actually my first book, at the time called On Becoming a Musical Mystical Bear, Spiritual American Style, um, I defined prayer as a radical response to life. And I've always stuck by that um, that definition. Um, I remember the um, psychologist, or the fellow who did uh, The People of the Lie. Um, M. Scott Peck? Yeah. He said, uh, for him, that was his best, the best definition of prayer he had ever heard. But the idea is that, like St. Paul says, pray always. So prayer is an attitude toward life. I think it's an attitude of of gratitude and thanks and awareness and and, and expansiveness. And um, but it's also it's, any, it's everything that's deep that goes on in our consciousness and psyche. And it's also then our travel through darkness and and uh, suffering and uh, doubt um, it's what the mystics call the via positiva then and the via negativa I think it's also what we give birth to in the world not only our children certainly our children but our citizenship and our our creativity however we express it our work in the world and um, it is our struggle for compassion and justice and that really follows the the outline of the four paths of Christ spirituality, which are efforts to name what a deep 
journey is. So I do think prayer is more of a consciousness. It's about prayerfulness. It's, it's, it's what the Buddhists call mindfulness, really. It's, it's, um, it's about um, uh, heeding the deepest needs of our, of our souls and spirits and psyches and uh, responding to them and not living at a superficial level um, uh, that is, is a world of distraction. Now, you mentioned the four paths of creation spirituality, and I imagine some of our listeners aren't familiar with that. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, traditionally, the mystical tradition has talked about the via positiva and I've and the via negativa. And what I've done is I've bring them into the room together, if you will. The via positiva is about the experience of divinity as light, uh, in the Greek theological tradition called the cataphatic divinity being drawn to the light so this is the experience of beauty and of grace and of uh, joy and wonder and delight and, of, and awe yeah, that's the via positiva <clears throat> the via negativa is, is the experience of the apophatic divinity the divinity of darkness the divinity, Meister Eckhart the great mystic says uh, God is without a name and will never be given a name so it's the mystery dimension of divinity, the Godhead more than the act of God of creation and salvation and so forth. And it's it's the path of silence, the path of meditation, calming the reptilian brain. But it's also the path of um, emptying, being emptied. I mean, how can you have mindfulness without mind emptiness? That there's an emptying that has to go on in order to refill, if you will, uh, the mind and our consciousness. And it's also the path of suffering, because suffering is one of the avenues of emptying and um, and being um, uh, filled up anew. Now, what I've done to the the naming of the via positiva and via negativa, in addition to bringing them in the room together, if you will, is to realize that when you put them together, it's like an electric spark, the positive and the negative creates something. So the via creativa comes next, the, the creative path, and this is a path of creativity. And I do believe that the many people have mystical experiences in the act of creativity, whether it's uh, musicians writing music or painters painting or dancers dancing or lovers making love or people cooking their food and, and growing their food. Uh, there's creativity everywhere. Uh, this is what really uh, distinguishes us as a species. And I think the whole tradition of the Holy Spirit as being present in creativity is, is extremely um, profound and, and, and ancient. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century said the, the same spirit that hovered over the, the waters of the beginning of creation hovers over the mind of the artist at work. And my proposition is that we are all artists because we are all in some way made in the image and likeness of the creator. Then the real transformativa is the fourth path because <clears throat> creativity in itself can be morally neutral. I mean, it's creative to make hydrogen bombs, I guess, or even gas ovens in Hitler's time. So creativity itself needs a critique. It needs a steering and a direction. And that direction is justice. That direction is compassion. So then that fills out the, the path, the full, full path of the creation spiritual tradition, the via positiva, the via negativa, the via creativa, the via transformativa, and they feed one another, and then it 
the image I use is a spiral, not a closed circle, and certainly not a ladder, but a spiral where it's ever-expanding, so that when there's more justice, then what follows is more joy and beauty and delight for people. So you move right from the via positiva, uh, transformativa, then back into the via positiva. So um, I have found these this naming of the path, the spiritual path, to be extremely practical for people, and it's applicable to so many um, situations in our lives. I, I wrote an essay once on on food and the via and the four paths, and you can apply it to to so much. Um, it even becomes a template for understanding our great musicians or our great authors. One of our graduates went on to do his doctorate in English and did his doctorate in Walt Whitman and applied these four paths to Walt Whitman. And he got a, um, a summa cum laude degree for it. His board said this is the first time that anyone's really made sense of Walt Whitman, in our, in our opinion, by applying these, these four paths, something really profound uh, emerges. We taught a course for years on musicians taking uh, Gustav Mahler, Mozart, or Beethoven, Wagner and so forth, and showing the four paths in their music, which helps people to realize how how musicians have played the role of, of spiritual directors, really, for for many for millions of people in in in, in the centuries past. <clears throat> so the many applications of the. I'm curious about that idea of the four paths in relationship to food. That's not intuitively obvious to me how that would work. Uh-huh. Could you help me there? Sure. Food. Food is a mystical experience. So we have that wonderful poem by by Rilke on the beauty and succulence of an orange. And uh, a lot of mysticism is about not taking for granted. And so to be able to write poems or just pause before we eat to admire a peach or a or an orange or M.C. Richards, uh, what a line once she said, uh, imagine inventing the curve of a cherry. You know, to give attention to food and, and all its beauty, as well as, of course, and its utilitarianness, and, and it's giving us good energy. But also, all food is cosmic, because all food is, is quite literally sun, sunlight. All food has a 13.7 billion year history, so it is cosmic. It's a, a gift of the sun, incarnated in this very special form of peach or orange or or uh, legumes or something else. So that's the via positiva of, of food, that it's not only healthy for us, but it's, it's delicious and um, and beautiful. The via negativa can come through insofar as, as I say, we pause uh, to give food some silence, um, some reverence. Uh, I remember a, a Native American teacher, Buck Gosaurus, once taught me, he said, if you want to know how holy water is, go without it for three days. And the first sip of water then becomes a very sacred act. And, of course, that is the tradition of fasting, and, uh, in the, which is found worldwide in, in all our spiritual traditions. It, it, it is about rediscovering. It's cleansing the body but it's, and the mind, but it's also rediscovering in the process, not taking for granted the sacredness and the specialness of food. Um, of course, another dimension to the via negative in food would be um, overindulgence. Um, you wake up the next day with a headache or a stomach ache, 
Or, of course, in a poverty situation, underindulgence, that you don't have access to food. So all that awakens other experiences of suffering and, and need, of course, of famine and, and uh, bad distribution of, of, of um, food is, is, is a very negative thing. And that kind of suffering is also part of the spiritual journey, if you will, that can be incorporated into it. And the Via Creativa, of course, is about um, preparing the preparing of food, the growing of food, which is a creative act. And, of course, it, it creates beauty and it creates conversation. So many traditions uh, celebrate, um, all tribes celebrate marriages, celebrate even funerals, celebrate births, and, and our days together by eating together, conversing together. And historical Jesus actually used eating as one of his primary political strategies to bring the rich and the poor together over food to discuss and to break uh, barriers. In fact, I, I wonder if maybe that's what's missing at Congress these days that we could be having. Maybe they need some dining together where they can actually be honest with one another and get something done. Then the Via Transformativa, the issues of justice and compassion come up because what are we doing about famine? And, of course, the whole ecological crisis, how we're depleting the health of food when we deplete the health of our rivers or our soil or our, our, our trees and our plants or the diversity of plants and seeds. What's happening today, for example, in some inner-city situations where people are growing food there and people are rediscovering the joy of growing food and the health of eating eating good food and, of course, the distancing of healthy um, stores uh, with good food in our inner cities. It's so hard for inner-city people to get healthy food these days. That, too, is part of the the issue in, in, uh, of the justice issues of food and so forth. So, again, the four paths then really lay open, I think. They shed light on the, the depth and the beauty and the reverence that we should have for food and um, how wonderfully involved humans are in the creative process of bringing food to the table and um, and turning it into a, a celebration, a real spiritual act of conversation and communion and conviviality. That's helpful. That helps me understand how you could apply the four paths to anything, as you say. Does it help you understand why you like food so much? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, although that was self-evident for other reasons. but Good. For other reasons. But see, you could add your own to this. You yeah, exactly. Exactly. The show's probably not long enough. The via personalativa or something. There you go. But I am curious more witness. about an aspect of the via negativa which has to do with suffering and bringing suffering into the room, bringing the via negativa into the room. In some ways that spiritual life and the spiritual path is talked about, the idea is to get away from suffering. That's something we're trying to escape from. But here you're bringing it right in as part of our path, and I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. Sure. Well, the mystics talk of the dark night of the soul. And um, Hafiz, the wonderful 14th century Sufi mystic, says... Uh, Sometimes what God wants to do is a great favor, turn us upside down and shake all the nonsense out. But most of us, when we hear God is in such a playful, drunken mood, quickly pack our bags and hightail it out of town. 
So what he's talking about there, I think, is the, the warrior energy in, in the mystic and the spiritual person is about sticking around when times get rough. And um, times do get rough for all of us. We have our valleys and our and our mountains to to, to travel through. And um, the the mystics, the dark night of the soul, is, is a way of saying, hey, there's something to be learned. There's a school here uh, that we're attending when there's suffering in our life. And um, what is it that we learn? Well, one thing we learn is compassion. We learn that what it means for others to be suffering because we are paying attention to our own. As Meister Eckhart says, compassion begins with oneself, with one's own body and one's own soul. So um, if we don't pay attention to our own suffering, we're not really going to understand others. But when we do, suffering itself is a common language, absolutely universal experience. And of course, this is what the Buddhists are teaching when they say that the whole, all beings suffer in the universe. And as part of the archetype of the crucified Christ in the Christian tradition, that all beings, including um, good people like, like Jesus and, and the cause of Christ, we all suffer. So uh, we, we want to ask, what is there to learn from that? And another thing we learn from the, from the mystics talking about the dark night of the soul is that for them, um, this kind of suffering is a purification of our longing. That's really the essence of what we learn at this school called suffering, to purify our longing. And I think that's a very important issue today. I, I really think our species is in a great dark night of the soul at this time because we're all unsure about what the future holds with with so many um, <clears throat> decisions ahead of us and so many institutions not working from from government to politics to economics and many of our religions are, are in bad shape. Education... Um, it is one of these times when there has to be this breakthrough. This um, this creativity has to come out of the the emptying. Um, people in AA learn this too. That the bottoming out that happens there is a profound shift in their entire way of being in the world. Um, late um, Father B. Griffiths is a wonderful monk who lived in India for many years. He said that um, that for many people despair is a yoga that they do not experience the spirit or God or transcendence until they go through some very deep um, experience, like uh, alcoholism, for example, where there's an, a profound emptying that happens. And I think, as I say, I think our species is going through a great emptying at this time. Hopefully we'll learn some of the really important spiritual lessons we have to learn from that, including this issue of the, the purification of our longing. I'm curious if you're willing to become even more personal with us, if there was a period in your life of great suffering and how or what sustained you through that, how you made it through. Well, one thing I've um, been uh, working on for the last number of years is the whole business of grief rituals. Um, I think that we need grief rituals very strongly at this time because, frankly, our religions uh, have lost their their uh, many of their practices of lamentation and of uh, grieving. 
So I, I lead people in these grieving workshops often, and whenever we do our cosmic mass, we have a grieving section. And it's very important to people. One woman said after she said, I, I love the whole mass, but the most important part for me was grieving ceremony because she said, I, I grieve alone in my bedroom. And no one's ever really asked me to grieve in a group before. Now, when I was personally going through a grief experience a number of years ago, a shaman gave me a drum, a hand drum, and he said, um, beat this drum daily for 15 minutes, wailing from your third chakra, whatever sound comes out, um, and uh, it will hasten your grieving process. And, and I learned that the, the teaching is that you, you can ride the horse in the land, into the land of grief by beating the drum. Uh, you're riding the horse. And it's a wonderful practice, first of all, because it takes your anger, and the first level of grief is anger, and it puts it into a drum, which means it's not hurting anybody, but there's no limit to how forceful you can be. But in the process, then, uh, you go many places. And in one of my meditations, doing this daily for 15 minutes, I ended up in a circle of Native American women who were wailing. And I said to them, you have more to grieve about than I do, and a woman spoke up and said, if your heart is broken, uh, stay, because you only have one heart. And this really taught me the universality of grief. That it, The question isn't mere mirror on the wall, who's suffering the most of all? But the issue is that um, to pay attention to your own grief is to enter a circle of humanity itself, that we're, we all have grief uh, issues, and um, we need to pay attention to them. And I think as a culture, we're not doing that well. That's one reason I think so many young people find themselves expressing themselves in, with anger, which is the first level of grief, but not having access to moving that anger into something deeper, which is sorrow, and then ultimately into bottoming out. So um, there are ways we can do this. There are these, these practices. That drum was one such thing, and the practices that I developed uh, with groups, uh, grieving is another, and uh, they're very effective and they're simple. They're always simple, but they carry you into deep places, and it's so much better than, you know. I think a lot of the reasons for obesity in our country. I know a lot of reason for obesity and other addictions, not just food addictions, but alcohol, drugs, TV, sports, sex, and others, is that we're not dealing with grief well, and uh, we have to deal better with grief because there's so much to grieve about in our world today with so much disappearing and um, and um, uh, we we have to give grief more attention. And this experience of collective grieving, I mean that's pretty rare that there's an opportunity like that. What do you think happens with a group grief ritual that's different than grieving on your own? Mm. Very good question. Well first of all there's a realization that you're not alone, you see, that because what we do is we get down on what we call all fours, but actually if you count, it's all sixes, and, and then a seventh. I have people put their head down on the floor as well. And that, that way you create an echo chamber, and then you let sound out from your third chakra, from your gut, which is where we carry our grief and our anger. And um, I tell people first to listen to themselves as you make sounds, whatever sounds need to come out. And then keep making your sound and start listening to your neighbors. So what happens is, first of all, you're hearing your own grief. And often you have not heard it. You've not been free enough to pay attention to that third chakra and let the sound out. Thomas Aquinas, 13th century, said sometimes there's a bear inside of you that needs to roar. That's what I'm talking about. And so these sounds come out. They may be roaring of bear or 
howling of wolves or tears or what have you, but you, you let it out, you hear yourself, and then you hear your neighbor. So part of it is that you're aware then that, that this grief is a universal thing because you're hearing so many versions of it, but also there's a, a safety about it. You have to create a safe space for this community action, collective grieving. And um, and that's important that you feel sustained by the power of the group itself. And then when it's all over, I have people, you know, report or tell what they want to tell about the experience. And, and many people shift profoundly in that experience. Um, they've been, we carry grief inside us, you see. And if we don't let it out, it's like a boulder um, blocking our heart. And it blocks our creativity. The via negativa precedes the via creativa. And if we're not doing the via negativa well, if we're not giving into the grieving, then our creativity is definitely blocked up. But when you do it, a new day dawns. And, and joy returns, and above all, empowerment and, and uh, creativity returns. I once did it with a group of uh, socially responsible business people, and um, they didn't know they were getting into a grief ceremony when they invited me. They just thought I was going to lecture to them. But I just had an intuition on the spot. I said to them, how many of you have done a grief ritual lately? And they all looked at each other, so we did it. And it was amazing. One man said that he had been working on a solar project for for 24 years and he had quit it two years ago but because of this grief ceremony he was going to go back to it and he was confident he could finish it uh so that's just one indication another person said he had been carrying this inside of him this grief thing for 20 years and had not dealt with it so it's, it's very liberating for people to um to do these uh ceremonies grieving ceremonies and it's very important, especially at this time in history, I think. Well, this connection between grief and creativity, releasing our grief and opening our creative channels is interesting to me because I wanted to talk to you some about the Via Creativa and your life. Here you are, seven decades of life, and you've written 30 books plus innumerable essays and uh, all of the lectures that you've given. And I'm curious to know what sustains, nourishes, and helps your creativity? Mm. Well, um, I wrote a book about this a few years ago, not about me specifically, but about creativity with the divine and the human meat, because, uh, like you, I feel this is a really important question. For example, you know, when, when, when anthropologists find bones of our ancestors, to guarantee that there are ancestors, they look for artifacts next to the bones. To, they, to me, this proves that the very definition of being human is our, our powers of creativity. And uh, we are a biped a cr who is creative. And so I don't understand why our school systems, our education, does not um, make creativity more prominent. We're too busy giving kids exams and this climb to the top, even the language of that is so, it's so, uh, it's so competitive. Um, no, the key to, to education for human beings is creativity. I'm convinced of it. Like I've been working with inner city kids in Oakland, uh, teenagers, high school, who are dropping out. 72% of black boys are dropping out of high school in America today. 72%. Why? Because they're bored. That's why, because they're bored primarily. And they're bored because they don't like sitting in a desk and taking exams all day. But 
my approach is to have them make DVDs, to have them make films about things that they are interested in, things they're passionate about, and then they do the research. And what happens is a complete turnaround. Uh, the last spring that we did a survey with our students, uh, 100% said they wanted to stay in school now because they had this positive experience of the joy of learning through creativity, through making their own videos with the the music and all, learning the skill of making a, a movie, but uh, above all, they, were, they tapped in their creativity. I mean, one day a senior, a black fellow who was a senior, turned to me and said, it's the first time in four years of high school that anyone's asked him to be express himself creatively. And that's what's wrong with American education, not that we need more and more piles of exams. It's ridiculous. So anyway, regarding myself, I find creativity in meeting young people. You know, and and seeing a problem like that, what's really wrong with our educational system? I'm I'm very disappointed in, um, frankly, in Obama's um, education department. I don't think they're doing anything important. To be blunt, I don't think they're reaching the real problem, and the real problem has to do with eliciting creativity. I, I spoke at Napa uh, two years ago about this, and a woman came up and she said, um, "I'm a teacher. I'm a great teacher, and I'm quitting." And every good teacher I know is quitting in this district because we feel like you. that We were not called to be teachers, to give an, an infinite amount of exams to kids. We're there to bring the wisdom and, the, and the, the, the insight of the kids out, and we don't have time for it. We can't bring creativity alive. We're, we're being burdened so with all these competitive exams. So um, I think this is a really important issue, the issue of creativity. And I think, you see, creativity is organic to the human species. I mean, we, everywhere, I mean, you can't find any tribe in the world that does not sing or dance or put on theater or express themselves and want to and get others to laugh and to cry and go through the four paths in creative ways through film and through and through music and, and all of it. But um, in our culture at this time, we we tend to, consider art uh, an accessory and it's it's the first thing that's dropped when there's a budget crunch which there is everywhere of course uh, around education so uh, I myself just find that I, I myself am am awakened when I meet people giving a lecture or something or being given a topic for a lecture to be creative to respond with um, putting ideas together I think the intellectual life is not about living comfortably uh, with guaranteed tenure. I think the intellectual life is about being on the edge, being on the margin, and and trying to wrestle with with issues. And this is creative. Uh, uh, every book I've written, to be blunt, I've written for myself. By that I mean I've had questions that I've wanted to pursue, and um, I couldn't find answers to them, so I... I wrote a book, <laughs> like that first question you asked me, what is prayer? That was my first book. Or the book on compassion, the spiritual name compassion. I was looking up the word compassion theologically. I was very disappointed in what I found, especially in Western writers. So I wrote a book on it. And um, in the Cosmic Christ, I, I I heard about it, hadn't heard much, so I wrote a book on it. So I, I, I'm creative in order to learn, and I and. For me, that keeps me alive and young and excited. And then I, it's a joy that others want to read over my shoulder, if you will, something I've written. But I just find creativity is at the heart of being alive.
Do you have a feeling, whether it's a feeling in your body or some sense like, oh, this is something I'm going to write about, this is something I'm going to teach about, at that moment of conception? Um, it, it often comes to that. Like just recently, I, I, um, I, I uh, came up with my recent book and then on the, called The Pope's War and um, another one just before called Christian Mystics. And the, a friend came out and said, what's your next book? And my first response was, I don't even want to think about it. Give me some time off. But then the next day, it came to me what I want to do next. I want to write about young people and spirituality. I think that religion is... It's very much up for grabs today. Then this, a lot of this comes from my book called The Pope's War, which is a, a reflection and a, and a narrative about what's happening in the Catholic Church today, but it ends with a bigger question about what's happening really in, in religion and about reinventing Christianity today. I think that's the good news that comes out of all this bad news about pedophilia and all the rest in the Catholic Church, is that... Um, it's an opening. Uh, this is an opportunity to reinvent uh, Christianity and to reinvent religion around the world. And the more young people I meet, um, I find that you know they're really not interested in organized religion. They've had it, but it doesn't mean they're not interested in spirituality and what religious values can come from that. Just a few weeks ago, I was going to a conference in in, in Detroit where I was speaking, and a woman contacted me and she wanted to drive me from the airport. And I said, "Well, fine, great." She had a 15-month-old baby, her first child. She was 37. She had been Catholic as a child. She had quit the church. She said, now I have this baby, and you know I want him to have the, the best values that I derive from my Catholicism, but I don't want to put him in church. I don't want him to be subjected to all that sexism and, and all the rest of it that's going on in Catholicism today. So what do I do? She said, that's why she wanted to drive me to to the conference so we could talk but i and she said i don't know anyone my generation i don't know anyone who's practicing um catholicism today and um and um we talked about a lot of things but my point is that i think this generation of young people just the other day was at a book reading at east west bookstore on my pope book and a young woman spoke up at the end she was about 22 she said i was raised fundamentalist in georgia and she said it's so good to hear an, an elder who understands my generation is not putting us down. She said, we've been so wounded by bad religion, but we are aching. And that's the word she used, and she repeated it. We are aching for spirituality today. And uh, I just think that's so important that elders and young people have to link up and give birth to new forms of, of religion. Um, uh, uh, a friend of mine uh, a year ago, uh, who I'm sure you know, whose name just slipped me, the uh, woman who played with Teilhard de Chardin as a young as a Jean young Houston. Adolescent. There you go, Jean Houston. She said that to me a year ago. She said, Matt, she said, our generation has to leave a healthier religion for young for the young people. And I couldn't agree more. As I said to a group recently, I said, you know, let the cardinals carry the basilicas on their backs. We don't need that. Let us just carry backpacks on our backs with the the teachings of Jesus and the mystics and whatever we can save from the burning building. But uh, we don't have to go the way of all this structural, institutional religion that a basilica represents. These are museums, and some of them are very beautiful museums, which is great. I love museums. But uh, very few people are looking to to uh, the church for spirituality today. 
but spirituality, uh, there, there are so many treasures to take from the burning building. And of course, at this time in history with ecumenism, there are so many treasures to learn, uh, for example, modes of meditation, from uh, many other traditions, of course, as well. So all the wisdom traditions today have something to offer. We've got to shake them up, though. And I think that the the present generation, the young people, this is one of their most important tasks. And now that so many are unemployed, uh, it seems like a particularly good time in history for the young people to be creating communities, alternative communities, and alternative celebrations. Um, things like Burning Man and so forth are examples of what people are trying to do to rediscover the power of ritual. What we've been doing with our cosmic masses, borrowing the rave, bringing it into liturgy, is proven to be extremely powerful and useful. And um, um, we're training others to do that. And so there are many ways to reinvent religion. And uh, I think it's one of the primary tasks of our time. So in this reinvention of religion, do you think that Christianity has a specific gift to give as we enter what you call deep ecumenism? or what other people refer to as a sort of world spirituality? I do believe that Jesus and, um, and the Spirit of Christ brings, brings a lot to the table. Uh, after all, it was Gandhi who said, I learned to say no from the West, meaning from Jesus. He studied the Gospels extremely uh, carefully, and um, he, even though he was Hindu, he applied um, uh, the prophetic message of Jesus and the Jewish ancestors of Jesus. Uh, to his situation in, in India. But, of course, he also elaborated on how you do this in a nonviolent way. And all that, again, he learned that from Jesus, and he said he did. And he was a Hindu. And, um, and uh, even uh, the Dalai Lama recently gave a speech to a bunch of Buddhist monks, and he said, we Buddhists, he said, are so good at meditating on compassion and talking about compassion. But he said we should imitate Christians more in acting uh, out of compassion. So um, I, there's just no question that um, East has much to teach the West. The West has much to teach East. The indigenous people have a lot to teach all of us, especially at this time of ecological uh, collapse. And, of course, the goddess traditions, bringing the divine feminine back is so important. Uh, but also we need a, a clean, cleaned up sacred masculine. It's a book I wrote a couple of years ago in the the Hidden Spirituality of Men, where I'm, I'm talking about a sacred marriage of the divine feminine and the sacred masculine. But men have to um, clean up our act. What do you mean by that, a cleaned-up version of the masculine? Well, we have to redefine what healthy masculinity is. We've been living in an illusion for centuries that healthy masculinity is about being number one and about um, military prowess and all this. And um, what I do there is I go through ten archetypes that, that are ancient, uh, about what what sacred masculinity is, archetypes like the green man. The green man is a warrior on behalf of Mother Earth. The green man is in touch with his relationship with the plants and the animals, and and creativity. The the big thing in the green man sculptures of the Middle Ages, when the green man was so important, is that he's giving birth from his fifth chakra, the mouth. You can birth to trees and to um, plants and so forth, because he's in touch with his creativity and his sexuality is part of the powers of the regeneration of the, of, of the planet itself. So there's the green man, there's the blue man, which Swami Muktananda had this amazing um, 
uh, meditation, he said the most important meditation of my life, his life was changed by where he saw a blue pearl that morphed into a blue man. And he learned from this meditation, he said that he overcame his fear of death and he got in touch with his own creativity and, and his powers of compassion. And uh, so the blue man is, is a very important archetype. And um, Father Sky, the rediscovery of cosmology today, how, how alive the sky is. I mean, for hundreds of years, we were taught by science that the sky was dead, inert, a, a, a junkyard for mechanical parts. Now, of course, we're learning through Hubble Telescope, and now, so it's that we're a star is being born every 15 seconds. That the the sky is a is a, is a birthplace, and it's it's fully alive. So so men have hunkered down uh, for centuries now because we were told uh, there's no such thing as a father sky. Now we're learning that the sky is as fertile as the earth, and so there's a new relationship father sky and mother earth that we can recover today so all that is part of the the marriage of the sacred uh, feminine the, the divine feminine and the sacred masculine today well when i hear you talk about the contribution that can be made through christianity i'm moved by that and that makes sense here we are we're in a new time where these new traditions something like deep ecumenism or world spirituality it's unformed we don't really know what it's going to look like and I think of you, someone, Matthew, who's always sort of on this frontier, on the edge. What do you think spirituality is going to look like in the years to come? Well, uh, let me give one concrete example is um, our cosmic masses, because at our cosmic masses, we've had Christians, pagans, uh, Jewish people, Buddhist people, Muslims, um, uh, uh, just such a, a variety of Hindus, such a variety of people, because they're based not on um, readings from a book, but on images, because we will have a theme, for example, the theme of the return of the divine feminine. And then we'll have images, say 500 images of, of, of uh, the goddess uh, from many traditions, including the Christian tradition, but all the world's traditions. Then we're all dancing in the context of these images and we're dancing a universal uh, message, if you will, the Divine Feminine. And she comes in so many names. She can be Kali, she can be the Madonna, she can be Guadalupe, she can, she can be uh, Atara, and so forth. And um, so uh, when you, what can I say, when you move out of the head, it's only when you're stuck in the head that you're busy talking about what's different in our traditions. But when you get into the body, which is how our ancient our ancestors all prayed for for most of our existence, humans prayed through dance, such as indigenous people still do. Uh, when you get all the chakras praying, especially the lower ones, then you're not stuck in what's different, but you're celebrating what we all have in common, which is our bodies, and it is our place in the universe, and it is our birthing of children and, and training of them, and it is our our grieving. And it is our creativity. I mean, um, uh, there's so much to be learned, I think, just from worshiping together. And uh, as I say, worshiping uh, by dancing and through images more than through words and, and certainly not through books. I mean, reading, reading is really, I love reading and I love writing and hoping others read. But I'll tell you, reading can be a very kind of isolating thing. Your eyes on a page are very different from ears picking up common music together and translating it on the spot into dance. And that's what happens in our cosmic mass. 
people can go to our, our website and see the Cosmos. So the Canadian television did a 15-minute uh, film on it, and it, it was well done, the film. And um, you get a feel there of what future worship's going to be. And it's not exclusively Christian, but it certainly doesn't exclude Jesus or the Christ, but it, it's so embracing that it can bring in so many things. After 9-11, for example, 10 years ago, we had a, a mass of the of, of Rumi, a Rumi mass, if you will. We had an imam come and do the, the little teaching there. Uh, but all of us, Muslim and Christian and Jewish alike, we were all celebrating the 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 what should I say the 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 grace in the in the Muslim Islam tradition and it was very important at that time of course people were beating up Muslims on the streets so um, we've had masses of the of the black diaspora celebrating the black experience and it's very powerful to see people of all colors uh, dancing the story of the uh, African American people and diaspora here. And um, and grieving together too, as well as celebrating the joy of, of their accomplishments. So this is how I think you 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 get along together, is by honoring one another's traditions. We've had a, a mass of, of the Celtic story, and that too was was uh, appreciated by people other than Celts, as well as the Celtic people who need to learn more, especially in America, about their own uh, stories and about their own traditions. Now, before we end our conversation, there's something important to me personally that I'd love to talk with you about, which is, you know, in the very first question I asked, I mentioned this idea of adult spirituality versus an immature spirituality. And one of the things in looking a little at your life story here from the outside is that it appears to me that you have been willing in different points of your life to really be a pioneer, to really go it alone in a sense if you had to, to separate from the Catholic Church when that was what was called for when you were expelled from the Dominican order. You continued in your own way. And it seems to me that great mystics, great religious teachers, spiritual teachers throughout time were people who were willing to take that step and be a pioneer, be a rebel, to use that word, but to individuate in a sense. And I'm curious what you think about that in terms of, quote unquote, adult spirituality. Well, I remember um, Margaret the King was once asked, how can you march through Skokie, Illinois, suburb of Chicago, knowing people want to kill you? And his answer was, you have to love something more than the fear of death if you're going to live. And um, that line has always meant a lot to me. I think the the dimension of spiritual warriorhood, and in the biblical tradition, what we call the prophetic dimension of spirituality, this is a big part of being adult, as you say. Um, spirit, religion and spirituality are not just about um, the joy of life, but also about um, uh, trying to uh, take on the forces and the powers that, of injustice that, that interfere with the joy and the spreading of joy in life. Um, and and so many leaders through the centuries, Jesus is one, Dorothy Day is another, and, and there are so many, um, courage, the building up of, of the heart, is, is, at, is at the heart of being adult. Uh, and frankly, for example, I get sometimes 
frustrated with Catholics today who are in denial, you know, adults who are just not willing to admit what's really happened in their church. This is why I wrote the book, The Pope's War, this this spring, um, that, you know, you just can't run from it. You can't hide in the pew and say, well, I hope the Pope doesn't see me or hear me or something. I mean, you have to stand up and be counted. I mean, the same is true in, in politics and citizenship. Uh, one of the things I learned from visiting South America the year I was silenced by the Vatican was the tremendous courage down there of ordinary people. I, I, in the Amazon, for example, I, I spent a week there with Bishop Casadialiga, who is a, a real saint and mystic, and, and by the way, was silenced by the Vatican himself. But he stood up to the military dictatorship in Brazil, but he all, and, and his priests and fellow workers were tortured and killed. And um, he stood up to the, the spoilers of the rainforest. And when I was there, he had about 250 church workers in from the diocese, from the rainforest. And they had a mass one night in an auditorium. No, it was in a field, uh, a gymnasium, very simple mass. But at the end, everyone was asked to go up and light a candle and name three people they knew personally who had been tortured and murdered, defending the rainforest or the rainforest Indians there. And everyone went up and did that. And one man said to me afterwards, the hard part was limiting it to three. He said, I knew at least 10 people off the top of my head. Here's a normal guy in jeans and a T-shirt. And I was reawakened about the courage of, of humanity. People, when they really believe in something like justice, can be very generous and very courageous. And there was a Native American teacher, Buck Ostorf, who said to me once in our tradition, he said, Fear is a door in the heart that lets evil spirits in. So all real prayer is about building your heart up uh, to be strong so that fear does not enter. It stays outside the door and does not bring in other evil spirits with it. And I think that's really important and profound spiritual teaching, that if prayer is not making, making us more courageous, if it's not making us more prophetic and, and deepening our warriorhood, then it's not real prayer. It's not adult prayer, as you say. It's something else. It's, um, it, it's, it's something that's mollifying our own intrinsic passion for justice. Because we're all born, born with passion for justice and for compassion. Compassion is a kind of passion. And if you can't get in touch with your passion, you're not praying yet, period. You're, and as you say, you're certainly not an adult. Part of being an adult is is passing on a world that's healthy for the next generations. And um, a lot of elders have to get out of their couch potatoes and, uh, and off the golf course and uh, start giving back generously to the youngest generation. We need this, what I call, intergenerational wisdom today between elders and young. And um, there is where elders will come alive again and find their courage. And because when you're working with and on behalf of the younger generation, uh, all kinds of generosity and, uh, and imagination, creativity flows. Do you think there's an aspect of adult spirituality that has a dimension of loneliness to it? Yes, uh, definitely. And, and you pointed that out. The, the prophet, uh, the prophetic uh, movement is often very lonely. And this is where it really helps to know some of these stories of the people who have gone before, like I, I mentioned King. But um, it, 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 in other words, what, what traditions call the communion of saints, or what others would call our ancestors, to be in touch with them, the people who have bravely stood up, paid the price for it, 
but we're right. And again, this is where the Jesus story carries a lot of weight. I mean, Jesus was uh, obviously uh, not very popular with the powers that be in his day. And this is one reason I think his story is so archetypal. And and um, you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate Jesus. Uh, um, if you get the story, it's a universe, It's an archetypal story that to stand up for compassion and justice and for the oppressed and um, you do this to one of the least of these, you do it to me. That consciousness of compassion is, um, what can I say, it's, it's earth-shaking. It's a revolution. And, and this is the, the appeal of, of the Jesus story in spite of the church, in spite of the church uh, 2,000 years. I think one of the great miracles in, in Christianity is that, is that Jesus can still be found someplace uh, in spite of uh, some real detours that Christianity, especially in building empires, helping people build empires, uh, these detours that uh, we've been taken on. Uh, but, but yeah, I think loneliness, now, of course, one distinction between loneliness and aloneness, and this is where meditation comes in, I think, that, that it does build the, um, the, the, the strength of aloneness, uh, and and you realize that you can be alone without necessarily being lonely. Uh, you can be a- alone and connect to other beings. That's one of the lessons again I learned from Buck Ghost Horse. He said that uh, I did a vision quest and all these animal spirits came, and he said, you know, your work will make you very lonely at times. Human beings will not always support you, but the spirits of the animals are supporting you. That's what this lesson is about. And I've not forgotten that lesson. I think there are many beings, including angels, uh, invisible beings. I wrote a book with Rupert Sheldrake on angels, uh, around, and we talked about this. But um, that uh, there are many beings that support us that aren't necessarily two-legged beings, or they're institutions to which we can be idolatrously uh, committed, unfortunately. And then just one final question which is here you've taught so many different people in workshop settings and through lectures and had interaction with so many different people who have admired your work and learned from your work. And you've set such a beautiful invitation with these four paths of creation spirituality. And I'm curious what you've seen are the main obstacles people face to really fully engaging in radical prayer as a way of living? What are the main things that keep people stuck and held back? Hmm. That's a real good question. Fear, of course, comes to mind. Um, people are afraid of losing their job. Um, I, I've gotten a lot of letters over the years from Catholics, for example, working in schools, Catholic schools or parishes, and saying, you know, I, I cannot... Uh, or can I say, I cannot teach everything I want to teach, I cannot speak everything I want to say because I, I don't want to lose my job. And um, so at least they're aware of it. And uh, so fear fear is, is a big thing. And again, this is why courage is such an important spiritual practice. Um, I, 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 I'm convinced the number one sign of, of spirit is, is courage in, in today's world. And, uh, and that, that takes you to the level of trust, too, which is a real meaning of faith. Um, can we trust that we will be held up if we um, 
if we uh, die in a certain way, that is, say, if we lose our job or even our reputation and so forth. That's that's the real meaning of of, of faith is is trust, and I think trust gets tested uh, uh, when we're when we're up against uh, important decisions and where fear would would uh, hold us back. Um, I think another um, thing that holds people back is addiction, and I think that whether it's addiction to institutions or even religion or any other kind of addiction, I think that addiction is is a sign that that we're um, we're not acting out of our inner self, but out of our outer self, if you will, um, an external reference rather than internal reference. And again, this is where I think mysticism is so important and so practical. Everyone a mystic means that everyone is in touch with their inner self and uh, their true self. And um, when we're not, we often cover up either our pain or even our joy <clears throat> with addictions. And um, uh, this is where meditation can help, but also psychology can help with people too to realize the connection between why we overeat or why we uh, overdrink or something else or, or depend too much on, on a cult or a, or a pope or any other religious ideology, we kind of sell our souls because we haven't really taken to heart the teachings of people like Jesus or Buddha that the kingdom of God is among us, uh, that that um, the divine is in all things. Uh, the cosmic Christ is us and all other beings. So I think that's another obstacle um, uh, that, that, that we can fall into, as I say, the idolatry of form. Uh, paying too much attention to structure and the way we did it as kids or something that made us feel good back then. And again, we're back to your topic of adult spirituality, adult prayer, versus just um, playing out our catechism of of decades ago. Um, and and so I think, that, again, the four paths really help us to break open um, uh, and break away from these obstacles because they get us more into our joy and uh, you know, like um, uh, Shafe and Shafe has done such good work on addiction. Points out that the the addict is uh, out of touch with his or her joy as well as his or her pain. They're they're busy covering both up, and and that's why mysticism is really the opposite. It's a mere opposite of um, of fundamentalism, which which is really a a commitment to an an ideology or structure. That is external. It's not really uh, about your deepest spirit in joy, in in grief, in creativity, or in your passion for justice. <clears throat> you know, Aquinas says that fear is such a powerful emotion with humans that it can drive out all compassion. So when when fear it becomes important, uh, compassion walks out the door. And I think that's a, a, a really important insight that uh, we have to both resist fear, but also those idolatrous forms, structures that um, are not what religion is really about. Religion is really not about institutions, and it's not about uh, projecting onto some uh, teacher or pope or anyone else, but it's really our responsibility, which is our wrestling with conscience and consciousness about why we're here and what what gifts we have to give back. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Matthew Fox. He 
is the author of over 30 books, plus a six-session audio learning course that he's created with Sounds True called Radical Prayer, Love in Action. And if you'd like more information on the work of Matthew Fox, you can visit www.matthewfox.org. And I have so much respect, admiration, and love in my heart at this moment for you, Matthew. You're such a courageous leader. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Tim, and thank you for your very uh, profound and provocative questions. I enjoyed our conversation. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>